Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the hammer that's poised to drop on the Trump organization. Today marked a crucial deadline for Donald Trump and top executives at his company to avert the long-anticipated reckoning that's coming their way. As the Washington Post reported late last night, prosecutors in New York gave the former guy's attorneys a deadline of Monday afternoon to make any final arguments as to why the Trump organization should not face criminal charges over its financial dealings. That deadline has now come and gone, and it could be the final step before criminal charges are filed. As the Post points out, that deadline is a strong signal that Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and New York Attorney General Letitia James now working together after each has spent more than two years investigating Trump's businesses are considering criminal charges against the company as an entity. In fact, this comes after NBC News reported on Friday that charges are not only likely, They're expected as early as this week. At issue are the so-called fringe benefits that the Trump organization doled out to its executives, including CFO Alan Weisselberg and his family. That includes free rent worth hundreds of thousands of dollars at a luxury apartment on Central Park, as well as free tuition, all of which could carry serious tax implications. Now, while that might be the tip of the iceberg, given how wide ranging the investigation has been, Trump's attorney says otherwise. Ronald Fischetti told Politico that prosecutors, in fact, don't have anything else and that Trump himself won't be charged, at least for now. So take that with a grain of salt. In their attempts to forestall an indictment, it also appears they're trying to use their employees as a shield. According to Bloomberg, Trump's lawyers are arguing that the people who will suffer the most are not Trump or his family members, but the company's 3,500 employees, like the dishwashers and maids at Trump hotels and golf courses. By that logic... The largest corporations would never be held accountable for breaking the law. All of this comes after the DA's office convened a special grand jury in May, which will sit for six months. In other words, that grand jury is on hand for another five months. So any indictment that comes down could just be an opening salvo. Joining me now, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. Glenn, I want to start with you because it is unusual, I think, for most people to see a company indicted potentially instead of an individual. What would be the implications? And I know we talked about this last week. Let's say the Trump organization is indicted. Is that about putting pressure on the individuals involved in the company? Or could the company itself face separate financial implications just from being potentially indicted? You know, it's actually about both of those things, Joy, because once a company is indicted, the last, you know, high profile case that we saw was back during the Enron scandal when the Arthur Anderson accounting firm was indicted for uh, obstruction of justice. And what ended up happening? They folded. They went out of business. So part of it is because the authorities want to get at a corrupt enterprise, a corrupt business, so it can stop 
you know, committing the crimes that it is committing as an organization, but it also is very useful in pressuring and in leveraging employees in the company who may be, you know, criminally responsible themselves. So I actually think it's serving two purposes. And you know what? Donald Trump's lawyers can run around beating their chest all they want about how these are small potatoes charges. The fact is, when we investigate, indict and try RICO cases, conspiracy cases and gang cases, we start with a relatively small, modest indictment. Sometimes it has a conspiracy charge, sometimes not. And then we build. We use it as leverage to flip people. The big fish doesn't have to worry about the first indictment handed down by a grand jury. The big fish has to worry about the last or the final indictment handed down by the grand jury. So this is really just the starter pistol going off. And it is still a long marathon to justice here. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Um, Let let me read you what Politico is reporting about Trump's attorney, Donald, more of what Ronald Fischetti has said. And this is what he said. Um, to the point we were just uh, discussing. Fischetti says, we asked, is there anything else? I said, no. Fischetti also said Vance's team told him they will not bring charges against Trump himself when the first indictment comes down, as we just heard Glenn explain how this works. They just said when this indictment comes down, he won't be charged. Our investigation is ongoing. Uh, Tim, I guess the question would be, let's say that um, that the implication here is that they're not getting the cooperation they expected from Alan Weisselberg, despite the fact that he and his family are on the hook for a lot of this. And Trump could easily just point at him and say, well, he did all that. I have nothing to do with it. Uh, my question to you is, having covered this uh, whole operation for a really long time, how long, in your view, would Weisselberg hold out if he gets indicted? How long would any of these other executives hold out and not drag Trump into it with them? Well, there's still so much we don't know, Joy, and it's really going to come down to the gravity of the charges. Uh, you know, Fischetti um, is pounding his chest. He's 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 directly saying that right now the stakes in this case are very small, and he can't believe the DA's office is wasting its time prosecuting it this way. I would I would find it very hard to believe that the kind of firepower Cy Vance has assembled. And the targets he has in mind, which we know include falsification of business records, uh, a number of uh, tax frauds and bank fraud possibilities. There's even, I think, the possibility of money laundering here. But we just don't know until we see what's on the paper itself when an indictment is formally filed. And that's going to trigger decisions among everyone in Trump's orbit. If Alan Weisselberg is gambling that all he's going to be charged with are, are tax problems or tax frauds related to, um, you know, unrecognized compensation from the Trump organization, he may believe he can beat that in court and that and that he doesn't have to flip on Trump for that. If Alan Weisselberg is facing more serious charges, they're going to wind up with him in an orange jumpsuit. I think he won't hesitate to flip on Donald Trump. It'll be nanoseconds, but we don't really know till we see the charges. Yeah. And his, his orange won't be cute like this orange that I'm wearing here. It'll be like a whole different than you. Uh, let's talk about the way that you, you talked a little bit, Glenn, uh, about, you know, kind of the way it works when, when, an, when a company is indicted. Uh, this is what a former federal prosecutor said uh, to Bloomberg on Friday, he said that any kind of indictment against a corporation could be the death knell. As you mentioned, if charged, it means customers and vendors are going to stay away. Contracts are going to be canceled. Donald Trump tried to throw his employees, um, which, according to some great reporting in The New York Times, sometimes includes undocumented folks uh, at his resorts, which he says he doesn't like undocumented immigration. But then he turns around and hires folks or low paid people at places like Mar-a-Lago. 
What would happen in theory to a company that let's say that, you know, the banks call in the loans and they say, if this company is in this much legal trouble, we want you to pay us now. And you can't pay us now. And they start to go under. Then what happens to these entities, these little 501c3s that are, that are I'm sorry, 501c3s, these LLCs that Donald Trump has everywhere? Yeah, I think it's all going to crumble like a house of cards. And Tim certainly knows better than I how highly leveraged the Trump organization is reputed to be. But it's impossible to conceive of how the Trump organization can survive a criminal indictment against Trump org. Because, as you say, clients will flee. Contracts will be canceled. Banks and financial institutions will have nothing to do with loaning them money. And as you mentioned, they may call in loans. So, you know, if I were a betting man, a buck is my limit. I would bet a buck that the Trump organization cannot survive a criminal indictment. But that really is just for openers, because the Manhattan District Attorney's Office will be working his way up the, the, the criminal chain. And he will go as high as he can go, as high as the evidence will take him. And two years of tax returns and financial documents that they now have in hand. I have to believe there's a lot of potential financial fraud in there. And Glenn, can can Donald Trump use the excuse of saying Alan did the books and this had nothing to do with me? Oh, he almost certainly will. But, you know, isn't Donald Trump a sort of uh, infamous micromanager? The Trump organization is Donald Trump. So I think he is going to be hard pressed to point the finger at Weisselberg or to point the finger at his children and say, listen, those are the bad actors here. I had no idea what was going on under my nose in an organization that I ran day in and day out. He can try that. But you know what? That makes it all the more likely that an Allen Weisselberg will flip on him. Worst case scenario, Put them both at defense counsel table, shoulder to shoulder, and let them start offering defenses where they're pointing the finger at one another. I have had mid-trial guilty pleas when that started because somebody wanted out and somebody now wanted a benefit from the prosecutors. Yeah, that's what Michael Cohen predicted. They're just all going to start accusing each other. Tim, uh, speaking of the children, uh, Mother Jones uh, has uh, do- has recovered documents. Uh, David Korn over at Mother Jones has a piece up where he says that it shows that do- Ivanka Trump did not testify accurately in the inauguration scandal case. Read a little bit of it. During a December 1st deposition, Ivanka Trump was asked if she had any involvement in the process of planning the inauguration. She replied, I really didn't have an involvement. That this wasn't accurate, according to documents, which indicate she was part of the decision making for various aspects of the inauguration, even including even the menus for events. According to the report, she was involved in reviewing the overall plans, recruiting the talent for events and pushing a women's entrepreneurs reception, which was uh, wound up being scuttled. How much loyalty actually exists in this family? Because it doesn't seem that Donald Trump is loyal to anyone except maybe Ivanka. Are they loyal in reverse? If people start getting in trouble for stuff like the inaugural How many of them stick together, in your view, just having covered them for so long? Oh, I don't think any of them stick together. I think I think um, everyone understands that in Donald Trump's world, loyalty is a one way street. He will throw anybody under the bus he needs to to save his own hide. I think including ultimately his children, if it comes down to it, I don't I don't think Donald Trump will go out of his way to keep anyone else from serving a, a prison time if it means protecting himself from winding up there. Uh, And I think that's why the evidence that Vance and all the other investigators are assembling, you know, criminal cases are built on intent. They're going to have to show Trump himself new things at crucial points in time. And I think one of the significant things about the documents Vance got is it's not just 
tax returns. It's also accountants work product. And they can dig in there for as much as Trump himself doesn't use email. Other people in that organization sent emails on his behalf. There are phone records. I would assume they're going to go through all of this so they don't only have to rely on the testimony of employees, although that will also be important. But I don't think there's going to be uh, any loyalty will not be the first hallmark of this event. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see who who cracks first, Trump or his children or Alan Weisselberg at all. Uh, Tim O'Brien, Glenn Kirshner, thank you both very much. And up next on the readout, William Barr's many alternate realities. Remember how he insisted on giving his own dishonest misinterpretation of the Mueller report before it was released to the public? Well, now he's trying to rewrite his role in the big lie, even though he enabled some of Trump's worst impulses. And Ibram Kendi joins me on Republicans stoking fear among white people about anything and everything that's anti-racist. Oh, God. Plus, tonight's absolute worst. They're taking a big right turn off Democracy Avenue onto Insurrection Street. The readout continues after this. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Former Attorney General William Barr spent most of his tenure in fealty, absolute fealty, to the twice-impeached, disgraced former president's worst anti-democratic impulses. But in some revisionist reputation laundering, he wants you to believe that he was on the right side of disputing the big lie, even as it became Republican dogma. Barr told ABC's Jonathan Carl in excerpts of an upcoming book published in The Atlantic that he knew Orange Julius Caesar's claims of fraud were garbage. My suspicion all along, he said, was that there was nothing there. It was all BS. Barr wants to look like he stood up to the big lie, but he also elaborated on demanding his already sycophantic DOJ appease the former president by allowing Justice Department prosecutors to investigate voting irregularities before results were certified. And that is contrary to Justice Department's policy. Barr also spelled out that the then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, get this, attempted to get him, the sitting attorney general, to help Republicans win an election in Georgia by placating a madman. Look, we need the president in Georgia, McConnell told Barr, and so we cannot be frontally attacking him right now. But you're in a better position to inject some reality into this situation. You are really the only one who can do it. I understand that, Barr said, and I'm going to do it at the appropriate time. Barr did eventually say something nearly a month after the election on December 1st, when he told the AP that the Justice Department hadn't seen fraud on a scale that could affect the outcome in the election underscoring how deranged America's Mango Mussolini truly, truly is. Following that admission, he confronted Barr and asked, how the F could you do this to me? Why did you say it? Because it's true, Barr replied. The president, livid, responded by referring to himself in the third person. You must hate Trump. 
Unsurprisingly, the poor loser from Mar-a-Lago wasn't pleased with Barr's attempt at cleanup. Join me now. Congressman Adam Schiff of California, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, an impeachment manager in the first impeachment of the former president. And, you know, I don't know if you if you found the most disturbing aspect of this interview with Barr, the fact that he appears to have collaborated with the then Senate majority leader to try to use a DOJ investigation that went against policy to try to help Mitch McConnell hold on to the Senate by winning those two elections. That is how I read it. Is that how you read it? That is how I read it. And it is astonishing that you have the attorney general of the United States essentially, essentially conferring with a partisan legislative leader to try to direct the Justice Department in a way that will help either the GOP or the president. Uh, and you're absolutely right. He violated Department of Justice policy, and he did it repeatedly. Uh, he was even willing to let Durham announce his investigation results uh, in the weeks leading up to the election in violation of another DOJ policy. Uh, and for him now to try to rehabilitate, rehabilitate himself, there is no rehabilitation for Bill Barr. Uh, not after what he did to the Justice Department, not after misleading the country for weeks and weeks with false claims of potential fraud in the election and fraud with absentee ballots. He was singing the president's song for a very long time. Uh, and the fact that he stopped singing it because he thought it would be more helpful to the party if he stopped when Mitch McConnell asked him, he gets no credit for that. Well, and I think that, and that is such an important point. It's not that he turned against the big lie because he knew it was wrong and that it was wrong for the president to approach him. I, can you imagine a world in which Eric Holder had known that there was a highly unlikely that any evidence existed, that, you know, the scales could be tipped in the election in 2012, and then conferred with Harry Reid, with Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, and said, but I'm still going to do the investigations anyway. And in Barr's case, he said he did it just because he knew that Trump would ask him. And he wanted to be able to say, we're working on it. I can't imagine how apoplectic Republicans and, frankly, the media would be if that had been Holder and Reid as opposed to Barr and McConnell. Can you? No, I can't. And there's a whole long line of actions and misconduct by Bill Barr along those same lines. If you can imagine if Barack Obama had intervened in a sentencing of someone who lied to Congress to cover up for the former president, what the, the outcry would be. But that's what Bill Barr did for Donald Trump when he intervened in the Roger Stone case. He made the case against Michael Flynn go away. These are astonishing actions by an attorney general, purely political acts to placate, please the president of the United States. Uh, if any Democratic president did anything like that, uh, there would be such a hue and cry about it. Uh, and, and so I don't think there's anyone in the modern history of the Justice Department who has done more damage to that institution than Bill Barr. Uh, and for him to now to give these self-serving accounts, um, it's too late, Bill Barr, for you to think about your place in history. It is irrevocably tarnished. Yeah, the cover-up general was his nickname that William Sapphire gave him back in the 90s. I think it still applies. Um, I want to let you listen to Senator Mitt Romney, because there's a thing that's happening among at least some Senate Republicans. I wonder if it's happening in among House Republicans as well, where they, too, are doing some laundry, some reputation laundry. Here's Mitt Romney on CNN about the big lie, talking about the big lie. I do think it's important uh, for each person to uh, to speak the truth and to make clear uh, that the big lie is exactly that. This is a bit like WWF, uh, that it's entertaining, 
but it's not real. I think people recognize that it's a lot of show and and um, and bombast, but it's going nowhere. And, you know, Congressman, uh, that would sound good had he voted to even discuss the For the People Act. But he voted with all of the Republicans to bar even bringing discussion to the Senate floor to talk about protecting the American people from the big lie, which is being enacted basically every day in the states. Right now, we have 14 states that have enacted 22 laws that restrict the right to vote based on the big lie. Are you concerned that this big lie, no matter what Mitt Romney tries to say in his own defense, is now going to be the prevailing factor in the 2022 elections and beyond? Well, I am certainly concerned with the use of the big lie to propel these state laws to disenfranchise people, and particularly people of color, uh, as well to push these laws that would strip independent secretaries of state of their powers and give them over to someone appointed by partisan legislatures. Uh, What the Republicans seem to be doing around the country is, number one, trying to decide the election by making it hard for people of color to vote. Uh, And number two, if the election still goes against them, to position themselves to overturn it, to be successful in overturning it in a way that they were not successful in the last election. Uh, These laws are just all daggers pointed at the heart of the democracy. uh, And anyone peddling the big lie uh, is doing so at great risk to our, our whole system of checks and balances. Yeah, indeed. Uh, One last thing I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, since I do have you here. We now have Speaker Pelosi having introduced a bill um, to establish this January 6th commission. I think very important for the country. There'll be 13 members. Speaker Pelosi can choose eight. Um, She's seriously considering a Republican. The remaining five would be selected. And here's the here's the hitch after consultation with Kevin McCarthy. Are you concerned that Kevin McCarthy will attempt to stack the commission in his five picks with people who were part of the big lie, people who supported the insurrection, maybe even some absolute looney tunes like Marjorie Taylor Greene in order just to disrupt it. Uh, You know, Kevin McCarthy is capable of anything. Uh, He is purely a political animal. There's no ideology there except ambition, uh, self-advancement. And so he's capable of anything. Um, But at the end of the day, the investigation will go forward no matter who he might choose to put on that commission uh, because we are determined to get to the truth uh, and to protect the country going forward. So uh, you're absolutely right. He may try to make a circus out of it. Uh, they certainly have done that kind of thing in the past. But, uh, but I think under the Speaker's leadership, uh, the House will make sure to do its duty uh, and that we get all the facts before the American people. Do you think he should be subpoenaed, Kevin McCarthy, since he spoke with Donald Trump on the day of the insurrection? I'll leave that decision to the commission uh, once it has a chance to evaluate all the evidence. Uh, But I do think the commission will need to follow the facts wherever they lead uh, and make sure we do a diligent job. Uh, This was an attack on the citadel of our democracy. uh, And uh, and we need to make sure that all those responsible are held held to account uh, and the public uh, is protected going forward. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for making some time, uh, Chairman, to be with us this evening. Thank you very much. Cheers. All right. And still ahead, as the search for survivors continues in Florida, so does the search for the cause of that deadly building collapse. We'll get a live update from Surfside and talk to an engineer specializing in building failures. That's next. Stay with us. I think that my family is just really scared because, like, obviously it's day five. There's been no... No one that's rescued that's alive at this point. I mean, 
We're hoping and praying for a miracle. And we are holding on to hope because we really want to be reunited with my mom. We're now in day five of the search for survivors at the condo collapse in Surfside, Florida. Officially, 11 people have died in this tragic incident, with 150 still unaccounted for. I'm joined now by MSNBC correspondent Ellison Barber in Surfside, Florida. Ellison, what is the latest that we know? Hey, Joy. Yeah, this was the second press conference today that started with news no one wanted to hear that they had found another body in the rubble. As you said, the death toll here is now 11. We do not know the names of all of the victims, but we know the names of some of them. I want to read those for you. We know the names of eight people who lost their lives when this condo collapsed early Thursday morning. They are Stacy Fang, Antonio and Gladys Lozano, Manuel Lafont, Anna Ortiz, and her son, Luis Bermudez. Christina Elvira and Leon Olivkovich. They are parents, grandparents, precious lives that were stolen in the middle of the night and 150 people are still unaccounted for. Officials, rescuers, they say they have not given up hope that they can find some survivor. They say that there are crevices where potentially someone could still be alive, but it is day five now. Family members were able to visit the rubble yesterday and then again today, some of them still have hope that their loved ones may be found. Others, friends, community members we've spoken to today say they're not so sure. As the minutes pass, as the days move by, they feel like the chances of people coming out of this alive are just shrinking by the minute. And some have started to lose hope. But again, officials are adamant that this is still a search and rescue mission. They say that they are not giving up hope. They have help uh, from across the state as well as abroad. Rescue teams have come from Mexico as well is Israel to assist on the ground here. A shift change happened not long ago. There are about 80 people, 80 rescuers working in 12-hour shifts. When they walk away, you can see it on their faces, how tired they are, how hard they are working. That is what the mayor of Miami-Dade said that she thought a lot of families recognized when they were able to visit the site of rubble. Not only were they able to feel close, she said, to their loved ones, but they were also able to see how rescuers hadn't given up hope yet either, and she hoped that maybe that that gave them hope as well. What the mayor told us is that she still has hopes because the rescuers still have hope. And they have been to horrific scenes before they were at the earthquake in Haiti. And if they still have hope, she says she'll hold on to hope as well. There's a makeshift memorial not far from here with photos of the missing. Again, 150 people unaccounted for. And now there are also stuffed animals scattered about uh, on that fence, teddy bears that rescuers found in the rubble and carried to that site earlier today. Joy. Thank you so much, Allison Barber. Appreciate that report. Okay, over the weekend, we learned that in 2018, an engineer warned of failed waterproofing, causing major structural damage to the concrete structural slab. But despite these warnings, residents were told that the condo was, quote, in good shape. Officials don't know exactly what caused the building to collapse. According to The New York Times, some experts are focusing on a spot in the lowest part of the condominium complex, possibly in or below underground parking or an inner underground parking garage, where an initial failure could have set off a structural avalanche. The Times reports that immediately before the collapse, one of the residents saw a hole of sorts opening near the pool. Engineer Rick De La Guardia said that the collapse could have also started higher than the foundation, possibly on the second floor. De La Guardia, a Miami-based engineer with experience in forensic investigations of building component failure, as well as the president and founder of DLG Engineering, joins me now. And Mr. De La Guardia, thank you so much for being here. Thank I you have for a lot of questions. Me, Joy. 
Of course. I have a lot of questions. Question number one, if there were structural issues with this building, there's another building. Should the people who live in the other tower of this complex be evacuating? Uh, first of all, let me offer my condolences to those who uh, lost their lives and the family members and also my appreciation to the uh, first responders. Uh, to answer your question, I read that 2018 report. And in my personal opinion, uh, that report uh, did a very good job in stressing uh, immediate action uh, for the structural integrity of the building. But I've seen uh, conditions personally very similar to that uh, on a lot of buildings that are 40-year uh, unmaintained. So I don't see that report as a red flag for imminent failure. I saw and read that report as a standard report of the condition of a building that's 40 years old that has not been maintained uh, uh, properly throughout the years. So I wouldn't worry uh, so much. My, my opinion is that the failure was caused by a litany of issues compounded uh, on, its, on them, themselves. So uh, I wouldn't be so concerned. Certainly, I have my thoughts on the process, how to prevent this going forward. And I do mm -hmm. believe the process is flawed. Well, let, let me go into this for a second. I lived in Florida for 14 years. And one thing that I definitely learned is that developers have a lot of power in Florida. They can build hmm. where they want. You know, there have been issues of building on brown fields and then having there was a huge expose called Sickness in the Soil that the Miami Herald did that, you know, of, of just building on places you shouldn't build. This is a barrier hmm. island uh, where these condos are located. Is it wise to be building on barrier islands? As you know, they slowly shift. They sort of migrate. They move. Building so close on sandy ground doesn't seem wise to me. Is this a case of building where probably building should not have happened? I don't know. I don't agree with that. I think we have the technology, we have the knowledge, the design uh, capacity to build in, in areas such as that. I believe this building was built with piles that went deep into the soil. So I, I don't think the, the location itself is an issue. I, I believe the issue is maintenance. Uh, regular maintenance, and, and unfortunately, uh, this building was not properly maintained, as evidenced by the 2008 report. Um, and I, I've seen evidence uh, of this, but uh, you mentioned uh, the developers having too much power. But I, in my opinion, the homeowners associations have too much power. They uh, they are basically uh, making decisions in the life safety of their residents, uh, some, not all, uh, that uh, are based on budgetary constraints instead mm. of um, the proper uh, repairs needed. And unfortunately, there are some engineers out there that will tailor their proposals for 40-year repairs to the budgetary constraints. And mm. the homeowners associations, if they don't like the, the fees of one engineer, can simply select another one So um, and until they find somebody that meets it within their budget. So uh, I don't think the location is an issue. I think we have good design standards for that. I, I think the issue is with maintenance and with the process uh, of, of uh, certification and, and who has the power. That's what I believe the issues lie. Well, that is uh, very interesting information. Very good to know. Uh, Rick De La Guardia, thank you so much for being here. And again, I'll share your condolences. Um, and we hope that there are still survivors there. Okay, we'll still ahead. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, she's trying so, so hard, so hard to be our absolute worst. Her creepy, weird obsession with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez reached 
strikingly racist heights this weekend. She said AOC was not an American and called her, quote, the little communist from New York, which is in America. AOC responded to that embarrassing spectacle by tweeting, first of all, I'm taller than her. Tip your waiters. Good line. And yet Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon lady, is not tonight's absolute worst. Believe it or not, the winner, or more accurately, the loser, is enabling an even greater risk to democracy. The big reveal is coming up. But up next, the conservative freak out over race and racial studies reaches a ridiculous new low. And new reporting on how Trump wanted to deal with Black Lives Matter protesters last summer. We'll be right back. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Claims of reverse racism have been the bread and butter of the modern Republican Party for decades. And now they have a new boogeyman to latch on to, critical race theory. The term has become the cause celeb for Republicans across the land. What this is, is it's a CRT theory, but it manifests in sort of this anti-racism training. All of this stuff is connected. The primary thread that links them all together is this. America institutions are inherently racist. Suddenly they're finding out that their local school is, is, is teaching them that, that America is fundamentally racist. That's all a lie. That's all poison. And it's being poured into the minds of our kids. Critical theory is an ideology that says the United States is rotten to its core. The leaders of this movement think our society is defined by white supremacy. Critical theory in all of its guises distorts our history. It destroys our common loves. And it would leave us hopelessly divided. Critical theory is a whole other thing. Anyway, this weekend, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson told a crowd of Republican supporters that he's more panicked than ever about the state of the country and that Republicans should, quote, take back our school boards, our county boards, our city councils. We will take back our culture. What exactly is our culture, Senator? And, and who is the our in that sentence? And who decides? You see, what these politicians are objecting to is a factual analysis of our history, warts and all. But what they're doing is far more pernicious. They've taken legitimate calls for critical self-reflection and demonized it into a catch-all phrase that they now wield as a political cudgel. They're so obsessed with owning the libs that they make bizarre statements like this one. I thought General Milley totally missed the point last week. He says, well, I yes. read Mao and I read Stalin. That's nothing to do with it. You know, we, read, we read Mein Kampf in school. No one thought we were Nazis. People didn't read Mein Kampf in school. No. Another common feature of the freakout is to name and blame particular black public intellectuals who are not even involved in critical race theory. One of those black public intellectuals is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, author of the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and the founder and director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. And he joins me now. Um, Professor Kendi, thank you so much for being here. I have been, the whole sort of co-opting of the term critical race theory and then Planting it onto really anti-racism has been an astonishing thing to watch. 
One of the astonishing features of it is that they've decided that you are the main person responsible for doing that. So I just want to very quickly get this off the table. Are you a critical race theorist? So I've certainly been inspired by by critical race theory. I, I certainly admire critical race theory, but but at the same time, I wasn't trained on critical race theory. I didn't go to law school, and and so I don't necessarily identify as a, as a critical race theorist. Yeah, right. You'd have to go to law school to be one, right? And you just made that point very well. But they don't either. They don't know really what it is either. But here is Senator Josh Hawley, uh, sort of one of the worst sort of offenders here, slamming you by name. Dr. Ibram Kendi wrote this. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. That's right. That's what he said. Think about that for a moment. He's saying that he's opposed to equality under the law. Dr. Kendi and his followers are in no uncertain terms advocating for state-sanctioned racism. <laughs> okay, now, now, given the fact that they can't seem to quote Dr. King accurately, I'm, not, I'm just going to assume that they're misquoting you or getting the wrong context. Can you explain, please, what uh, that quote, even if it's an accurate quote, what it means? Sure. So, so Joy, we recognized as a nation that elderly people were, were dying at the highest rates, uh, were the most vulnerable to, to COVID-19. So, so we decided that it was best to provide vaccine to those people first. No one described that as a bad policy. But young people could have said, hey, you're discriminating against us. And we would have responded, well, older people are dying at the highest rates. Should they not receive vaccine first? But if we would have then started thinking about, oh, black people are also dying at the highest rates from COVID-19, you know, maybe they should also receive, maybe they should also receive vaccine first. Maybe we should have a, a, a system in which those who have the, those who have the greatest needs are provided with what they need, but they call that reverse discrimination. They call that discrimination. They're against that. How are we going to create equity and justice for all if we're providing the same resources to middle-income people as we're providing to billionaires? Yeah, this is the same uh, theory under which they have gone after black farmers receiving um, benefits when they have only 14 percent of the land at this point. They've been stripped of their land. But then they're saying that white farmers need to get all the rest. All the benefits need to go to white farmers or it's reverse discrimination. They're doing that in court. Stephen Miller is part of that. Um, I just want to ask another couple questions just to make sure that we're getting everything clear. Do you believe that white Americans are inherently racist? Oh, I do not. And, and indeed, in How to Be an Anti-Racist, I make the case that we shouldn't believe that anyone is inherently racist or that we should identify anyone as a racist. And I make the case that racist isn't a fixed category. It's a descriptive term that, that describes what a person is being in any given moment based on what they're doing or saying. And so if a person is saying Black people are lazy, they're being racist. But in the very next moment, they're advocating a policy that creates justice and uh, equity for all. They're being anti-racist. OK. Uh, and, and do you know of um, any schools that are teaching that white Americans are inherently racist? Have you ever heard of any school that's teaching that anywhere? 
I haven't. And, and, and indeed, I would speak out against that school if, if it was doing it. And we now know that one of the groups um, that is under attack from the same people who are attacking you are military, the military, particularly military generals, including the secretary of defense uh, and the joint chiefs of staff chair, uh, General Milley. He's now been attacked by Donald Trump. Matt Gates, uh, who never served and probably wouldn't have the guts to serve for 10 seconds, nor would Tucker Carlson, nor would Laura Ingraham. They've all gone after him. Bill Kristol has called that out as sort of proto, sort of ground level fascism. Um, he said Trump voters are pro-military. Why are Trump and Carlson attacking the military? But, uh, but the attack is on woke generals, the brass, and disloyal citizens in charge. It's an, an attempt to appeal to aggrieved troops and vets and to divide the military and subvert civilian control. It's a classic move for authoritarian, from the authoritarian playbook and also from the fascist playbook. What do you make of the fact that, the, that people like Trump wanted to use the military to attack Black Lives Matter protesters? Specifically, he wanted them—and Milley refused, by the way. They got in a cussing match. He said, I'm not doing that. But that they don't believe that the military should study whether there are racists and white nationalists in the military because some of those folks attack the Capitol. What do you make of that dichotomy? I mean, I, I think it's 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 pure sort of insanity that's that's presented as as, as logic. And the, the fact of the matter is 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 American armed forces have a have a white supremacist problem, and and the leaders have recognized that, and those leaders have decided that the way in which you address that issue is by teaching people to be anti-racist, by teaching right. people to recognize the racial groups as equals, and it's fascinating. And we've learned this year. But the Republican Party isn't pro-cop, because if they were pro-cop, they would have responded differently to, to the Capitol insurrection. And they're certainly, we're showing now, they're not even pro-military. These are, these are wedges and terms and constructs they use, uh, just to, and they lie about them, just as they lie about anti-racism and critical race theory and the 1619 Project. And your book really took off after the George Floyd murder, and so did uh, Robin DiAngelo's book, White uh, Rage, or uh, I believe that's the name of her book. Um, do you think that this, that, that the right is using the George Floyd movement and the fact that white Americans saw what happened to George Floyd and said, oh my God, we need to question whether or not there is structural racism in our society, that that's what this is about. This is about white Americans having woken up to what happened to George Floyd, and now the right wants to stop that. I mean, if you're an elected official, if you're a white elected official who has been instituting policies that have harmed the majority of white Americans, and all the while you've been convincing those very white Americans that you're fighting for them, that you're instituting policies that help them, that you're, you're teaching them that the cause of their pain are people of color, you're not going to want them to wake up. You're not yeah. going to want them to understand racism because then they're going to see you as a problem and vote you out. There you go. There you go. And if you're anti-anti-racist, think about what that says that you actually are. Ibram X. Kendi, I'm so glad you could be here. Author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Thank you. And still ahead. This automaker is certainly going places, but maybe not in the right direction, making them tonight's absolute worst. The readout continues after this. Remember when all those companies said they were going to stop donating to the Republicans who questioned the election results even after the Capitol was attacked? Well, turns out that some of those companies went back on their word. 
hoping that enough time had passed for them to continue to curry favor with as many politicians as possible. That's just how the Washington swamp works. Now, of course, some companies barely even tried to have principles in the first place. After the insurrection, Toyota played it coy. They told an industry publication, quote, given the recent events and the horrific attack on the U.S. Capitol, we are assessing our future PAC criteria. And now an investigation by the group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington shows that Toyota gave $55,000 to 37 Republicans who objected to certifying the election, a.k.a. the Sedition Caucus. As Axios pointed out, Toyota gave more than twice as much and nearly five times as many members of Congress as the number two company on the list. In a statement, Toyota told Axios that, quote, we do not believe it is appropriate to judge members of Congress solely based on their votes on the electoral certification, unquote. Now, hold on a second. If it's not appropriate to judge politicians based on them not accepting the basic tenets of American democracy, then what would be appropriate? Toyota attempted to draw a line between those 37 Republicans and others they say are they're not donating to because they, quote, undermine the legitimacy of the election. But while they may not have donated to Marjorie Taylor, QAnon Lady Green, for example, the 37 Republicans they did donate to are not so innocent. A majority of the Republican politicians Toyota donated to joined the absurd Texas lawsuit directly challenging the election results. And after the Sedition Caucus voted against certifying the election, Republicans did their best to obfuscate any investigation into the insurrection. That attitude led to Liz Cheney's ouster, which was officially introduced by Republican Virginia Fox, who, yup, got money from Toyota. And if, as Toyota says, not everyone deserves to be judged, well, what about Andy Biggs, who's been accused of organizing the Stop the Steal rally? While he denies doing so, he's been raising the specter of election fraud from the very beginning to the extent that his own family called him out for it. But according to Toyota, he should not be judged for that. So, for officially caring more about cozying up to power, no matter how seditious, than about America continuing to be a democracy, Toyota, you are tonight's absolute worst. And that is tonight's readout. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.